neighbor, I heard about your heresy, and we've made it our mission to win you back to the flock. No sale. Homer, Christian life isn't all praying and sacrifice. Hey, dig this. Hello, and welcome to the Doxology Podcast. I am Jens Nelson. And I'm Lucas Stock. And this is a podcast dedicated to journeying together on the road that is the Christian faith. We thank you for joining us as we discuss and investigate theology and the Christian life, and this month a little bit of heresy, uh, as we strive for unity amongst our diversity as members of Christ's church. So Lucas, as I mentioned, we're, uh, we're, we're knees deep in the middle of October, which is really uh, nothing but heresy month. And so nothing instead of... But- Exactly. And instead of our customary Christians of history, uh, we have transitioned on Fridays to doing a heretic of history, which I think, to be clear, is not to say that some heretics are not Christians. I'm sure some of them you know, probably changed their mind and, and repented, but some of our heretics probably did not. Um, <laughs> so that's interesting to think about. But for the sake of this month, we're talking about heresy, we're talking about some heretics and what they propagated, so... Without any further ado, Lucas, why don't you introduce our heretic of history? I would gladly do so. So today we are talking about Nestorius. Um, You may recall if you listened to Tuesday's episode where we talked about different Christological heresies, I kind of made the claim that Nestorianism is sort of like the big daddy of Christological heresies. Um, I wonder if that's where Big Daddy Weave gets their name. I don't really know. Maybe, hopefully not. <laughs> <laughs> um, but that would, I guess, make Nestorius the big daddy of heretics related to Christology. So big daddy Nestorius, um, we're going to talk about him today. So like many heretics throughout Christian history, especially the further back you go, um, we don't know a ton about Nestorius's life before he kind of comes on the scene as a heretic um, because that's sort of what he becomes remembered for. And it's a lot easier to, you know, have biographies written about you and have your books survive and be copied and passed down through the generations when you aren't condemned by a council as being a heretic. So because of that, for better or for worse, I think probably for worse, we don't know a ton about Nestorius' life beyond his uh, escapades into heresy. Probably he was born in the late 300s uh, in Antioch uh, and died in exile around 450. Um, There's a good chance uh, he studied under a famous theologian from Antioch who we, I don't believe, have ever even mentioned. Um, We haven't talked about him. Um, uh, I don't... I don't know that we've really even touched on anything he's known for, but um, Theodore of Mopsuestia. Um, if he didn't study under Theodore, Nestorius was was influenced by him. Um, but like I said, that's pretty much all we know about his early life, about his background. Um, uh, as we will see, he was a churchman, he was a priest, uh, he, he, he was a bishop, and um, he was a heretic. <laughs> that's sort of where the story goes. So um, in 428... Uh, Emperor Theodosius II chose Nestorius to become Bishop of Constantinople, which made him 
Nestorius, I mean, the, the new patriarch of the imperial, imperial city. And this action itself is super important, and it carries a lot of baggage with it that we would not pick up on naturally um, because there is a long and complicated um, theological and political rivalry that plays a really important role in a lot of different conflicts in the church and debates, but but is also really relevant to the life of Nestorius and his heresy. Um, So I'm going to kind of take a minute to sort of just give a bit of context to why it really matters um, even before he becomes a heretic, that Nestorius from Antioch becomes Patriarch of Constantinople. Um, in the ancient church, there were five C's, uh, S-E-E-S, five uh, bishop seats that were based in five major cities that kind of represented the most important churches of the day. And when I say important, it, it's it's because these were the most important cities in the empire. They were the biggest, they were the most prosperous, they were the most significant, um, uh, except for one of them, Jerusalem. It wasn't really important imperially, but it was important as sort of the home, you know, the home city of, of the faith. Um, so these churches, they, they, they had a lot of respect. They, they were important in the sense that they were located in really central cities, and then they also came to have a lot of respect for their... Um, for, for you know, and, and honor given to them by uh, other churches um, as they were, like I said, the big cities, the centrally located. It would kind of be like if there was, you know, big churches in New York and L.A. and Chicago and Atlanta or something like that, um, that it would just be lots of people, lots of attention, um, lots of access to, to uh, you know, uh, uh, what am I thinking of? Like, uh, libraries and things like that. So, so important cities, important churches. And those cities were, I mentioned Jerusalem. We also had Rome, uh, Constantinople, Antioch, and Alexandria. And the bishops of each of these cities were known as patriarchs um, or pope. Um, it, it, it's essentially the same word. Um, Antioch and Alexandria, two of the patriarchates, which, by the way, all of these cities today are still patriarch. They still have patriarchs. The Bishop of Constantinople in, in the Greek Orthodox Church is the, is the, um, the ecumenical patriarch. Um, the, uh, the, the Bishop of Alexandria is, is the, the patriarch. He's also called the Pope of the Coptic Church. Um, and as we know, the Bishop of Rome is, is the Pope um, of the Roman Catholic Church. So yeah, that, this is still the case today, but it was a lot more significant back in the day when, when we were talking about just one united church at the time. Um, Antioch and Alexandria were, you know, at times really bitter rivals, but they had they had a, a long-standing rivalry, both politically um, and theologically, in the church. And yes, my cat agrees. They were they were extreme rivals, and it was really important. So, the, <laughs> theologically, the the tension between Antioch and Alexandria came down to. Um, approaches to basically differing uh, uh, opinions on how we do theology, how we approach scripture, how we interpret scripture. So in very simple terms, the Antioch, the, uh, I always have trouble with this word, the Antiochene school of theology, the, the way of thinking from Antioch represented a more literal grammatical approach to scripture and tended to emphasize Jesus's humanity. And the Alexandrian school represented a more allegorical or spiritual 
uh, approach to scripture and tended to emphasize Christ's divinity. There are pros and cons to both of these. This is a much, I mean, this, this warrants a whole episode in itself, just the, the rivalry between these two cities. But that's sort of the theological um, difference between the two um, that, that led to their, you know, theological rivalry. But unfortunately, there was also a, a, a pretty strong political aspect of this too, which is a little less pleasant to think about when we think about, you know, the church kind of being, you know, operating as like this political, you know, rivals, rivals. It, it, it's not, I don't like it, but it's the way it is. So that's how it is. So um, politically, the um, the theological difference sort of was the foundation of their of their rivalry. But politically, this meant that leaders of both Antioch and Alexandrian churches are, are throughout history, we see them competing often in less than, you know, Christian ways for ecclesiastical power. And a major feature of that battle for ecclesiastical power was trying to gain more influence in one of the other cities, Constantinople, because that was the most important city in the East and really in the whole empire, because it was the, at, at, by this time in history, it was the home of the emperor and therefore home of the most important bishopric, the most important patriarch in the East. He's called, like I said, even today, the ecumenical patriarch, ecumenical meaning the entire empire. Um, so it's not like he was the Pope who controlled all the other bishops, but he was the most significant because he was in the city of the emperor um, and, and the heart of the empire. Um, so to bring it back to Nestorius, Emperor Theodosius II preferred the Antiochene school of theology. This was at a time when the emperors had opinions on theology and they would influence the church and they were sort of involved in, um, you know, the, the back and forth of theology during the, uh, you know, debates that would go on. So because he kind of preferred Antioch's way of thinking, this would have led him to maybe want the patriarch of Constantinople to come from Antioch. So this probably led to him choosing Nestorius to be the next patriarch. Um, and I don't want to make it sound like this was all just slimy politics, um, but you can't ignore the political dimension of of this. Um, it, it was theological and political at the same time. And also probably just Nestorius likely had a reputation. He might have already been a bishop in Antioch. So, so you know, he was qualified, whatever. So basic, you know, upside, um, Nestorius becomes the ecumenical patriarch. He becomes the patriarch of Constantinople, which is significant. It, it represents a victory in sort of the rivalry for um, Antioch. And it also is important because he came to represent heretical views, but he is in a position of extreme power relative to other, you know, churches. Um, so on Christmas morning in 428, so the first Christmas um, as Bishop of Constantinople, Nestorius preaches a sermon that um, would kick off the the great controversy over Christology that we kind of touched on in our episode on Tuesday that would lead to two different ecumenical um, councils, including Chalcedon, that one that we read the definition from that defines Christ uh, Christ's two natures as being without division, without separation, without confusion, and without change. Um, that those really significant 
church documents and events directly come from this controversy, which gets kicked off on Christmas morning when he publicly condemns the use of the title Theotokos, God-bearer, for Mary. We talked about this on Tuesday again, um, but the the way Nestorius thought, he, he, he didn't have any space, you know, for the category of Jesus to be born of Mary and to be called God. Um, he, you know, remember conjunction, not union. So Mary gave birth to Jesus, who God was conjoined to, not Mary gave birth to God. So that caused quite a stir. And then it became a really big stir when on Easter in 429, um, so the fall, you know, the Easter following this Christmas sermon, um, he published a, a, a letter to the church um, to be sent around the church that that kind of made it, you know, put it in writing, his, his, his objection to the title Theotokos. So remember, he wanted to use Christotokos instead. And in that letter, he actually declared the use of Theotokos to be heretical. So he's going, you know, that I think is a detail that um, it was new to me. I didn't remember that um, from the when I've learned about Nestorius in the past. And I think that's really significant. Like, he's really, he, he's going hard <laughs> in the direction of pressing against um, what was Orthodox practice and, and would ultimately be upheld as Orthodox practice. Um, so this official public, you know, condemnation of um, the title Theotokos got the attention of Cyril of Alexandra, who we also talked about on Tuesday, who was the the primary opponent of Nestorius. Um, and we've talked a lot about Theotokos. You know, he's, he's complaining about what we call Mary. That was what kicked off this controversy. But as we talked about with our discussion on Nestorianism the other day, um, the reason he makes a big stink about that is because of all of this theological reasoning underneath about who Jesus is. So there's a long back and forth correspondence between Nestorius and Cyril. And we actually have letters from both of them. Um, in a few weeks, I'm actually going to be reading um, one of one or two of Nestorius's letters for a class, which is cool. I've never, I've never had the opportunity before um, to actually read Nestorius. I've just read Cyril, so I'm excited about that. Um, I should have gone ahead and read them, but um, I was a little pressed for time, so I, uh, well, you know, I didn't do that, but whatever. The point is, we have letters from both of them as they're going back and forth, they're arguing their side, um, and neither of them are really budging. You know, like, it's it's this long-term debate. Um, it wasn't just like Cyril heard what Nestorius said and flipped out and condemned him or vice versa. It was this back and forth where they're both trying to argue their case. It, you know, it wasn't always this super pleasant brotherly dialogue, but it also wasn't just this instant, you know, hatred. The point is there was this debate between, between the two. Um, and they're debating, like I said, not only the term Theotokos, but also what it means to speak of Christ more generally as both human and divine. So eventually, um, there's a council which would become the third ecumenical council that was held at Ephesus, um, which has kind of like the, the, the entirety of Nestorius's story. Um, there's a lot of like dirty political back and forth with the council of Ephesus um, because there was like, the council was called and then Nestorius and all of his supporters like didn't get there 
Like they got there a few days later than everybody else. And everybody else just started without them and condemned them without them present to like explain their views. So then Nestorius and his crew shows up and they, they learn what's happened. And then they go off and they have their own council of Ephesus where they condemn Cyril and everybody else. And so then you've got these two, you, you know, like it, it's messy and, and, and obviously not, um, you know, not the finest moment of like um, honorable, you know, honest, genuine discussion and debate to just have two rival councils uh, condemning each other. But long story, the, the, uh, the, the first <laughs> real council of, of, um, of Ephesus is recognized as um, a, a, uh, ecumen- one of the ecumenical councils of the church. It's recognized as upholding Orthodox doctrine. Um, it, it condemns Nestorius. Um, it upholds use of the term Theotokos, which again, we also saw in Chalcedon when Jens read it for us on Tuesday, where it mentions, it uses the word, the, the term God-bearer, which is the English translation of Theotokos. Um, and with that condemnation from the council, Nestorius is deposed and, um, you know, his name now lives in infamy rather than fame. And uh, he, like I said, he, he probably died in exile um, I'm not sure where he was exiled to, but that was kind of the typical punishment for bishops <laughs> who got get condemned as they lose their their uh, their bishopric and then kind of get kicked out of their their city, um, which is you know maybe not how we would do things today, but like it or not, it's how they did it back then. So, <laughs> dang, <laughs> that is uh, Nestorius and dang. the life and times of of an unfortunate heretic. <laughs> Man, it's crazy how things used to operate back then. I'm just trying to picture like, you, you know how like sometimes when you send a text and you're really ang- anxious and uncertain of how someone might respond and you're just like waiting with bated breath and then, you know, there's that whole thing about being left on read or whatever. But can mm-hmm. you imagine back in the day with like letters and correspondence, just like the the incessant worry every day of like, is it going to come today? Is it going to come today? Like Cyril's just over here like, bro, is he going to see if he's going to respond this time or something like i'm sure that they had those same sort of like queasy feelings in their stomach but man i've never thought about that but i mean yeah you're sending letters by hand by by foot from alexandria to to istanbul today like egypt to turkey you know you don't you can't send it through the air (laughs) it's like a paper airplane just like hope it lands uh well, real quick, so we failed to do this in our Tuesday episode, even though it's highlighted bright green on our on our screen uh, to, to do this. Um, <laughs> what uh, what are you reading, Lucas? We'll do this very briefly just to, to wrap up. Do you do you have anything you're reading this week? Um, do you remember what I said last week? I don't. I feel yeah, so bad. I can't remember I can't remember what I said last week, but um, I am reading. Um, I'm, I'm sort of wrapping it up this week um, in one of my classes. I'm reading Gregory of. I'm reading some selections from Gregory of Nazianzus's. You are not um, reading that. On God and Christ, hmm. which is a collection of uh, sermons that he gave where he's talking about God and he's he's talking about the Trinity. And this is sort of um, a a like a high point of um, Trinitarian theology and a significant contribution from the Cappadocian fathers of which Gregory was, you know, Ginaz was, was one of them. Um, and he especially, um, I think it's, I think it's 
oration 31 or something it's the fifth one in this collection um is on the holy spirit and he gives a really like one of one of gregory of nanzianzas's big contributions is a defense and an argument for the divinity of the holy spirit and this sermon this oration on the holy spirit um was really really i read it i read it the other day for for my upcoming um class meeting but it is a really fascinating read he, he gives some some really just incredible theological like arguments and reasoning against um arians and semi-arians and people who didn't you know didn't want to to give divinity to the holy spirit in their theology but it, it was it was it was it was a challenging read there were some things that i'm like huh i wonder what that means for that you know um but it and it was also just his, his style you know i i'm not like i'm reading it in greek or anything but um the translation it, i i just is is communicates a really beautifully written sermon as well and i'm thinking like like man these these things I'm reading in my you know patristic theology class like these were sermons you know like he 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 preached a series of sermons in his church where he's hashing out trinitarian theology that people 1500 1600 years later are now looking back to as like form foundational documents of the spirit's divinity and it's like imagine like being in a church like that like i don't know i've got a lot of thoughts about it but um that's that's what i'm reading this week and and sort of wrapping up this week sweet i see i think i've mentioned but i often have this problem of reading a number of books at the same time and so like i'm still working through the last harry potter i'm still working through augustine's confessions um i've got tim keller's book on jonah and (laughs) matt emerson's book on (laughs) <laughs> um, he descended to the dead. So like, I could talk about any of those, but at the same time, I also like have been very slowly reading, um, is Jesus truly God, which I think the subtitle is something like how the Bible teaches the divinity of Christ, which I think sort of like touches on what we're, oh, what yeah. we're talking about in these last couple of episodes here. But, um, really like the, the, the central focus of the book is the question of Jesus's divinity. I mean, he's the, the author says it's basically, you know, been at the epicenter of theological dis- discussion since the early church. Again, is how is Jesus God and man? Um, and so, like, he talks about the you know, first council of Nicaea in AD 325 and how the church fathers affirmed that Jesus is true God from true God. And uh, he touches on, you know, how today, you know, even though some of these truths are still confessed in creeds and in churches throughout the, our country and throughout the world, um, it still kind of remains a confusion. And like, if you asked Christians, like if you if you asked your common average evangelical, like how do you know that Jesus is God? Um, they might not be able to articulate, you know, texts or councils or definitions giving that evidence. And so he, in this book, I think it's like six um, I'm trying to remember. I have, I'm, I've, like I said, I've been taking it very slowly, um, but I think it's like six reasons and like evidences that that Jesus was truly God. So I don't know. It's it's pretty interesting. So that's cool. Is that a like is that an old book or is it recent? Do you know? Yeah, sorry, I forgot to mention it was published in 2020 by Crossway. <laughs> it actually wow. just came out like a couple months ago, if not like even more who, recent who, than that. But who's it's it, Greg who's Lanier. It by? Oh, okay. Greg I don't Lanier, think I know. L-A-N-I-E-R. Okay, cool. Um, he, he, 
he's a, a New Testament prophet, um, RTS, Reformed Theological Seminary in Orlando. Cool. Um, but yeah, it's a it's a pretty solid book so far. It's a really thin one too, and that's like one of the nice things about Crossway is a lot of times they publish books that like are accessible to like average lay people who aren't academic theologians and so if you are somebody who who wants to like read a book on you know is jesus truly god uh maybe this is a good place to start because it is brief and concise and like you said especially after our last couple episodes like you know that's a great like for further reading uh place to start i would say is is hammering down not all the heresies but (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> what the bible actually the orthodox teaches belief <laughs> right so awesome. yeah check Sweet. check that out greg lanier lanier something like that i'll sorry for butchering butchering your name greg i know you're a, uh, an avid listener but uh, thank you so much for for listening to this episode of the doxology podcast if you'd like to connect with us you can hit us up on twitter and instagram at doxology podcast you can email us um, you can send us a paper airplane or a letter in the mail at doxology podcast at gmail.com we'd love your feedback your questions and your episode ideas make sure to sign up for the newsletter um, check out logos.com slash doxology podcast we would love to hear from you later see you